Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast, an adaptation of the Numlock Sunday edition. I'm Walt Hickey. Today my guest is Abraham Josephine Reisman. She's the author of the new book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Numlock readers will recognize Josie from her biography of Stan Lee, True Believer, and uh, this one is likewise about a massive pop cultural figure who has a personality and whose faults have, have kind of had international reverberations on a couple different levels. Uh, it's a really great read. I loved it. I've been looking forward to it all year. Uh, the book can be found wherever books are sold, and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you. Josie, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, yeah, fire away. <laughs> you are uh, you are out with the new book Ringmaster this week. Uh, I've been looking forward to this all year, honestly, since since I heard you announced it. Folks might know you from your Stan Lee biography. Uh, you know, both of these stories are about complicated men who worked in the entertainment industry and uh, how it kind of destroyed them. Uh, I guess what kind of drew you to Vince McMahon? Um, I was a teenage wrestling fan, um, from the ages of about 13 to 16, I was very obsessively involved in, uh, Vince McMahon's product, the World Wrestling Federation, as it was known then. And, you know, three years isn't all that long a period of time in, you know, adult human years, but teenager years, those are a century each, you know, it's, um... It was uh, a time when I was very impressionable and wrestling made a big impression on me. And, you know, after I gave up on it around 2001, I stopped watching for like 20 years. And then when I was done with my biography of Stan Lee, True Believer, I had to come up with something else to write. And I was having a conversation with my wonderful spouse, uh, who ended up being my frontline editor on this, but was not at the time, uh, S.I. Rosenbaum. And we were just chatting about what could the next book be. And one of us said, what about a biography of Vince McMahon? Now, she'd reported on wrestling in the past as a local news reporter, not on the WWF, but, um, you know, on the wrestling world. So she was familiar with him. And... Um, I obviously was familiar with him, had a lot of distinctive memories of him, had some knowledge of his real life, but it was, as is true of most people's knowledge of Vince McMahon's real life, ill-informed um, because he's very good at deliberately um, altering your perception of him. So it just seemed like a natural idea. He, was, he is this amazing individual whose story had not really been told in a um in the particular way that i wanted to tell it it's a it's a fascinating business story it's a fascinating cultural story we'll kind of touch on each of those elements in a bit i guess to give folks a little perspective who might not be totally familiar with wrestling what role does vince mcmahon play in the evolution of it and, mm. and what it's become today versus what it was maybe 50 years ago sure yeah vince um vince is the singular man of professional wrestling right now there's no one more powerful uh or influential than him both in the present and also in the recent past you know of the living people in wrestling no one has had more of an influence than vince mcmahon 
He took over the company from his father, who was a wrestling promoter, like his father before him, um, in 1982 and 83. He, over the course of that year, purchased the company from his father and uh, some minority shareholders. And after that, Vince sort of went on a war of conquest. Up until then, wrestling had been this largely regional phenomenon. You had regional territories where local bosses who operated not unlike mob bosses um, would dictate what pro wrestling was in that, that geographic territory. And it was an oligarchy. It wasn't a democracy, but it was an oligarchy. It was, it was not unlike, you know, the English nobility circa Magna Carta, where it's like, it's the, it could have been the beginnings of democracy, but democracy, it wasn't. Um, but the fact was power was more diffuse than it is now because Vince went on this little mission to take over wrestling in America and Canada. And he did for the most part. I mean, for entirely. Uh, yeah, it's not talk about conquest. And- not exactly a monopoly because there are small other promotions or have been, you know, now there's a pretty big rival promotion, AEW. But for about 20 years there, from 2001 until 2020 or so, Vince was essentially unopposed in the world of professional wrestling. And the whole art form has been changed by that fact, by the fact that this one person has so much outsized influence on how it has evolved in the past four decades. And it it really was a conquest again, like he cajoled and, and destroyed and won over and, and allied with, don't forget bought. I mean, the, the big thing was he would flood the zone with money and tell the top talent at any given region or a territory rather, you know, come over to my, my shop and you'll get paid more. And it's a very punishing industry financially so unsurprisingly a lot of people said yes um and similarly he would just buy tv slots in rival territories and start broadcasting his show in syndication um it was it was a you know one of the wwf's employees spoke to a reporter in the early 80s or mid 80s and said that vince was executing manifest destiny used that actual phrase it was it that was not uh an uh an, it was an apt comparison let's say that yeah and i think that i'd love to hear your view on how you know he changed wrestling to reflect him because we're going to get to a second about how wrestling kind of changed a lot of the world around it but mm-hmm. whether it was you know the bodybuilding uh league that he backed for a bit or whether yeah. it was the distinct styles in wrestling i, I suppose i'd love your view on like what does the Vince McMahon wrestling world look like that's different than perhaps what came before? Um, the Vince McMahon world of wrestling, for one thing, this is perhaps the most important thing, has no, it no longer claims to be a real sport. This was perhaps, I mean, there's a lot that Vince reshaped, but a lot of it's sort of technical it'll be like oh well he he started doing this kind of camera thing it's it's a grass vast accumulation of little things that result in an altered tapestry but the big historic world historic break was vince in the mid 80s started pushing to get his business deregulated so he didn't have to have uh you know say a state athletic 
committees uh, overlooking health and safety and uh, levying taxes. And his big strategy for that was not in public, but behind the scenes in legislation sessions and in um, lawsuits. He would he and Linda, his wife and their their um, underlings would say, uh, don't worry, this is all fake. You know, this is not, you don't need to regulate this like a sport because it ain't a sport. It's just like Harlem, the Harlem Globetrotters or the circus. That was the comparison they always made. And it's unclear whether Vince ever intended to make that all that public. Perhaps it was inevitable that it would have been, but he was kind of caught off guard in 1989 when after four or five years of this deregulation effort and after some lawsuits that he had testified, that he or Linda had testified in, um, in which they'd said all that, it finally got reported. You know, the New York Times ran uh, a big story called Now It Can Be Told All These Re- These Wrestlers Are All Just Having Fun. And it was about how the WWF's deregulation campaign, especially in New Jersey, had resulted in them going on the record and saying in legislation and in uh, legal proceedings that wrestling was fake. And Vince was kind of caught off guard because he was not intending that to be a big public New York Times story, but he'd already laid the groundwork. Whether or not it was his intention, that effort, which also combined with something that was very public, which is he started referring to his product in the mid-80s as sports entertainment, not wrestling. It was sports entertainment. And that change, that shift towards acknowledging wrestling's fakeness in a grand way was just a sea change. It, it resulted in a lot of enormous upheaval. Yeah, I suppose I'm interested in then, like, how that deregulation and, and that upheaval affected not the just product. the folks who worked for him, but I mean, yeah, the product as well as, but like the human beings who worked for him. So much of your book is about the relationships between Vince and various different wrestlers. Mm-hmm. If, if he's the only game in town and if the state's not paying attention, that led to some significant negative impacts for a lot of people and a couple significant positive impacts for another group. Do you want to talk a little sure. bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. In the absence of anybody telling Vince what to do in a meaningful way, um, he was able to execute a lot of very abusive business tactics towards his workers. Um, You know, wrestlers are not employees. They are independent contractors. They don't have health insurance provided by WWE, uh, sorry, WWE as it's known now. Um, And they are in this very low paying profession compared to other athletic events of similar spectacle and um, notori- uh, notability. Like you, you have these people who are every bit the athletes that a basketball player or a football player might be, but they get paid vastly less and have so few job protections and no voice because there's no, again, there's no collective bargaining. Um, and so that has manifested itself in a lot of death and destruction, you know, not to put it too bluntly, but the, you know, I could go on all day about all the people who've been affected in that way. Just a few off the top of my head, you know, Owen Hart, uh, the younger brother of the famous, uh, you know, a wrestler himself, but also the younger brother of the 
very famous wrestler, Bret Hart. Owen Hart died in the ring. You know, he was doing a zip line stunt. Well, technically it was called a descender stunt, but that's getting technical. Um, he was doing this stunt where he was flying in from the rafters at a pay-per-view event. And Vince had changed up who was managing that stunt. And the person who did it was allegedly somewhat incompetent. And the botched stunt led to him falling 70 feet and hitting the ropes and then falling into the ring. And he died, you know, mere minutes later. And, um, you know, the show went on. That was the thing about Vince was any, any other athletic event. If one of the players died, I can't imagine that the game would have continued. I can't, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some sports example that I'm not aware of, but it would be completely obscene and impossible to imagine uh, a sporting event continuing after one of the players died. That's exactly what happened with Owen Hart. Vince told them not to, to, to keep the show going. And, and the, the, the arena crowd, it was 1999. So we don't have as much internet penetration in like a remote location. Uh, but you had all these people in the arena who therefore didn't know whether Owen was dead or not, thought maybe it was all part of the act because they weren't told. And they cheered their heads off for the rest of the show, thinking maybe that was all part of the show. That's just one example. There's countless people who've died young because of injuries or head trauma or, um, you know, steroid use, drug use, all, all any number of things that just go completely unchecked or largely unchecked in wrestling because it's just not a regulated or unionized industry. The steroid component was a huge part of it as well, too. Yeah, back in the 90s, uh, it's actually kind of interesting. The steroid scandal that the WWF found itself in was arguably held up as a bigger deal than the concurrent scandals about rape. You know, Vince was accused in that same period and around in the early 90s and then especially in 1992 of raping a female employee in 1986. Um You know, he was accused of actively knowing and looking the other way about child rape in the WWF among the so-called ring boys, these these sort of underage boys who were hired to do odd jobs. And um, the steroid thing, and there was a bunch of other sexual misconduct allegations, but those were two of the big ones. And then the steroid thing was always held up as a... Let me start that again. Sorry, didn't mean to get the... The steroid thing was always held up as a bigger deal than any of the other stuff. It was the steroid allegations, and those were specifically about um, uh, those were specifically about like distributing and pushing steroids on uh, the wrestlers, which you know is was a bit of an abstraction because I, I i vince didn't have to actively come tell any wrestlers to do steroids they knew that that's what the boss expected of them so trying to pin it on a specific like oh vince said to this one wrestler you need to do steroids today and here they are that was going to be very hard to do so it's very odd to look back on the steroid trial or well, the steroid scandal is what led to the federal trial that vince faced in 1994 um, and yet you look back on it and the steroid allegations are easily the least interesting of, or at least least scandalous or 
uh, least harmful in many ways, even though they were harm, you know, steroids are very harmful. They're nothing compared to rape. And uh, it was, I wonder why the media attention went so much to the steroids. I think a lot of it just had to do with the war on drugs. Mm. You know, there was just a general moral panic about art, about chemical substances, especially their use among young people. And I'm not saying young people should be doing anabolic steroids to bulk up. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think um, it maybe got held up as a bigger deal than some of the allegations that may now seem more serious because it was part of this larger American phenomenon. It was also likely more obvious on his face as well as like more easy to report on. Yeah, that's definitely true. You're, you're, You're absolutely right. But that, that doesn't necessarily preclude media from making hay out of something just because it's harder to prove, uh, especially when it's something salacious and tabloidy like uh, sexual misconduct. But I'm sure that was part of it, yes. Was the steroid thing, you just have to turn on your TV and you see all the evidence you need by looking at The Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan, as opposed to some of the other stuff. I want to talk about some of the really cool reporting and, and new information that you broke in this and, and just kind of like things that I got out of your book that I have never seen or really kind of felt before. And, and I got to say one theme that I think you kind of keep coming back to is just that like how Vince is able to do this is that he appears to be like preternaturally charismatic. And, and you mm. have a couple scenes in the book. I recall one where I think he's talking to Bret Hart um, where he, he's just able to win somebody who is technically in conflict with him fundamentally over to his position. You, there was also the expert this week that ran about a negotiation between him and one of the, those ring yeah, boys, the, ring boys and, the one who came forward and, to accuse him. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess his character and his skills and like what he's, yeah, really, what Vince, his talents are. Vince is an enormously charismatic um, individual, uh, which is interesting because he wasn't as a child, you know, this was not, um, necessarily a phenomenon for his entire life. I spoke to many people who knew him when he was young before he got involved in the wrestling industry. And they all said he was kind of unremarkable. Like they liked him, but he was not, you know, president of the class. And he was oftentimes he wasn't even doing any extracurriculars. So um, at some point, either it flowers or he learns it. And by the time he meets Bret Hart, you know, Vince McMahon walks into a room and everybody looks at him. I've never been in a room other than an arena with Vince McMahon. I've never interviewed him, but everyone I know who has said they've been in the same room as him is, is, they all say it's like gravity. You know, you just can't escape the pull of wanting to be around this sort of uncanny dude. It's not just that he's charismatic. He's also just physically odd to look at. And that's appropriate because Vince and his father both really understood that the human mind is easily hackable in one very particular way, which is humans don't know what to do with uncanny looking other humans. Like if you see somebody who's really big, just enormous, you're going to pay attention to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you can win them over after they started paying attention to that person, then you've got it made. And Vince is an enormous guy. Not as much now. He's older, but, uh, you know, in his prime, and his prime lasts well into his 60s, he was just a bulked out dude. And it's something that everyone remarked on, even before he started wrestling or doing anything as a real character when he was just an announcer. 
you know, I was talking to people who watched him in the seventies when he was an announcer starting out and everyone was like, yeah, we would watch and we'd be like, why is the announcer so jacked? Like that doesn't <laughs> Is he going to wrestle at some point? What? What? Why is that happening? It's, it's, it, whether that's intentional or not, it's, it's effective. You know, people are weirded out by Vince McMahon and that leads them to pay more attention to Vince McMahon, you know, and that's yeah. something used to his advantage a lot. That's fascinating. I, I think that like, you know, wrestling has lent itself rather well to memes. A lot of Vince's actual strategy with recruiting and retaining wrestlers was to find folks who had a very distinctive look. If you look at who has kind of gone mainstream in Hollywood from wrestling, they're, they're, they're gents with a very specific aesthetic. Uh, do you want to kind of speak to some of that and maybe some sure, of the other yeah, I mean, culture? The people who have broken out of wrestling and become people that your mom might recognize are, you know, John Cena, Hulk Hogan, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. These extremely charismatic, extremely large, chiseled, slightly odd-looking men. And very few of Vince's wrestlers have actually achieved that level of mainstream prominence. But the ones who have um, have been very successful. I mean, once, you know, John Cena's a, a, probably the most popular wrestler uh, who's still sort of on the roster. You know, he occasionally wrestles for them still. Um, but all these past stars who are still in Vince's fold, they all know where their bread is buttered and they they don't piss off Vince. They have had a lot of influence. I mean, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's star is falling at this moment, thanks to Black Adam, but um, that doesn't mean he's not one of the more recognizable humans on the planet. You know, he could still run for president. He keeps teasing that he might. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jesse Ventura, Jesse the Body Ventura, not created by Vince initially, but he became a megastar thanks to Vince. And uh, Jesse was, you know, the governor of Minnesota and then now is an influential conspiracy theorist. You know, it's like these people come at the world from odd angles and end up taking it in even odder angles, you know? Yes. Can you think of any recent examples, perhaps from recent American politics that could potentially back that point up as well? Yeah, right. Well, I don't know why I didn't talk about that. But yeah, there's a particular <laughs> member of the WWE Hall of Fame who happens to have been the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Vince and Trump are very close. They've known each other since the 80s. Uh, Trump was the host of two WrestleManias in the 80s. And then, uh, you know, would appear at wrestling events and class the joint up. And then um, eventually, most notably, he had this whole storyline where he was a character as himself and he was in a rivalry with Vince McMahon. And they had the Battle of the Billionaires at WrestleMania in 2007. And it was uh, a real interesting spectacle in retrospect. I mean, at the time, people ate it up just because it was a reality star and another reality star, essentially, <laughs> doing it on television. But it ended up having a lot of significance. I, I really think that experience of doing that storyline was transformative for Donald Trump because Trump wasn't a guy who worked rallies as of 2007, really. That was right. not his milieu. And he's not somebody who likes watching politician speeches. You know, it's not like he's learning how to work a rally from, you know, watching George H.W. Bush deliver the 
you know, State of the Union or something. He's he learned from wrestling. Trump, Trump's been I, I say he's known Vince, Vince since the 80s. He's been watching McMahon family wrestling since he was a child. Like we have people on the record really? talking about watching. Yeah, we have people on the record talking about um, watching uh, Vince Sr.'s wrestling show. That's Vince's dad in um, in the 50s and the 60s, you know, um, and he was really influenced by that. John Trump loves wrestling. He has watched it for a very long time. And I think the experience of doing that, um, that storyline and watching all that wrestling, but especially doing the storyline really taught him how to work a crowd into a fervor by tossing them little bits of unspeakable truth and big chunks of completely outrageous lies and delivering them all with the exact same level of commitment, you know, and the crowd ate it up. And I think that was a taste of something that he then craved more of. Fascinating. So again, the book is called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Uh, Josie, I want to kind of back out a little bit and talk about not only this book, but your previous book. Because again, Mm -hmm. I I mentioned in the beginning how like there's a lot of connective tissue there and like how these are folks who have a chip on their shoulder. They're not in the mainstream and they really lust for the mainstream. And then that fundamentally changes the way that they view the world, the people around them and the, and the folks who work for them. And and I suppose just kind of take a step back, you know, what kind of connective tissue do do you see between Vince McMahon and and, and Stan Lee, two two men who are fundamentally instrumental for, for like the current state of pop culture. What happens in culture now? Yeah. And politics as well. Um, You know, they were both, men who created a character based on themselves, but not themselves and then lost themselves in that character. That's the most obvious comparison. You know, Stanley, Stanley was born Stanley Martin Lieber and became this character named Stan Lee. And eventually that was kind of all that was left was the Stan Lee character, at least in most of his interactions with people outside of his inner circle. And it was a prison for him in many ways. Uh, it was by the end very different from how he acted with his his uh, intimates, and uh, with Vince as well. Vince, when he became a character in the wrestling as a supreme supervillain, he became Mister McMahon. That was the official branded name for his character, and Mister McMahon was seemingly at least an extrapolation of Vince. And I think in a lot of ways it was an extrapolation of Vince, but Vince has always maintained. Oh, Mr. McMahon isn't me. Mr. McMahon is based on all the people I hated when I was growing up. And we didn't really have time to get into it in this interview, but my whole big fat theory about that is he's talking about his father, Vince Sr., who he never says anything mean about, but I can't imagine he doesn't have deeply um, conflicted feelings, even if he's not really in touch with them, about this man who abandoned him for the first 12 years of his life and then was cold to him for the entire rest of the time they knew each other. We can go there. I mean, again, he did kind of run off and join the circus, so to speak, when his father reentered his life. Yes, he uh, when he met his father at 12, he um, threw himself into wrestling. He became a huge wrestling mark. You know, he was not into wrestling as a child up until then. But when he found out that his father had this whole other life doing that, he wanted it and he threw himself into it. He became his own wrestling promoter in high school. Vince had never talked about this, but I uncovered it. You know, in high school, when he was at military school in Virginia for two years, he would stage pro wrestling shows in the school. <laughs> These were, this was his beginning. And he's never talked about that because it, 
interferes with the story he's tried to foster of himself as a juvenile delinquent rather than somebody who was doing fights only for show. Um, but, uh, you know, now I can't even remember what the question was. What did you say? I was just going off and talking about his high school. Oh, no, I was just expanding on kind of the history. I guess to, to kind of add on to that, um, you had a hell of a time reporting this out. You, it was a lot of records. You you, you were, it's, it's covering a guy like as slippery as, as, as somebody who has a wrestling character can be difficult in his own right. What went into some of the reporting just before we kind of wrap A lot. I mean, you know, it was a lot of document, going through documents and a lot of cold calling not a lot of travel because this was a pandemic book for the most part. Um, And I did go to North Carolina. That was my one priority was all the other travel was optional, but I had to go to North Carolina as soon as there was a vaccine. And lo and behold, once there was, I went down there and I found a lot of stuff. It was very interesting. You found this total counter narrative to what Vince had told everybody about his youth. And, um, you know, yeah, it was a wide array of things. Lots of interviews. I talked to more than 150 people. Um, uh, yeah, building off of other secondary sources. You know, how does anybody write a book? But yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so the book is called Ringmaster. It's Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Uh, Josie, do you want to tell folks where they can find it? And yes, maybe please. What's in it? Look for me at abrahamreisman.com or... You can look just at the book at ringmasterthebook.com. Ringmasterthebook.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Josie for coming back on. The book is called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon of the Unmaking America. It is available wherever you buy books. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for subscribing to Numlock. And thanks to JT Fails for the use of our theme song. Bye.